Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, I went to Brussels for the European Union's annual trade day. Chad dutifully wore the on-brand birthday present I had bought him. While I was there, Samaya also sent me to find Alan Beatty, the European leader writer for the Financial Times and a veteran of the trade beat. I joined in remotely and we talked about a few different things. We spoke about recent developments in Brexit, why the European Union is taking the approach that it is, challenges when setting trade rules for data, and how the European Union is handling relations with the Trump administration. How does it feel for trade to have become so cool? Kind of odd, to be absolutely honest with you. I was talking to a friend about this who was also a trade reporter and said, it's kind of like we were all working in a library. You know, there were a small number of us. We were working quietly. We all knew each other. No one ever really bothered us. And then suddenly it became cool. And all these people sort of crashed into the library, talking noisily, taking books out, all sorts of stuff. And you know, your initial reaction, I'm afraid, is to go and go, shh, and, you know, hope they leave again. But no, you know, to be honest, it's, it's quite fun that you've accumulated all this human capital over the years, which has been of limited use. And in some cases, you know, when you, you're covering a, a trade deal that goes on for, you know, trade negotiations like the Doha round that went on for a decade and got nowhere at all, human capital that had basically become worthless has now been worth something again. So yeah, on, on balance, it's good. Can we talk about whether anything has been going on with Brexit recently? So the latest thing which happened this weekend, finally, is that the EU and the UK agreed what they called a political declaration, which is supposed to sort of set out the framework for the long-term deal. So what they'd already agreed is what they call um, the withdrawal agreement, which will sort out the UK actually formally leaving the EU um, in March next year and what the uh, UK government continues to call an implementation period, though, of course, it, you know, it may end up being somewhat uh, somewhat longer than they think, during which time the UK will essentially hew very closely to the EU. So the political declaration is supposed to be, what do we get to after that? Does the UK remain within a customs union with the EU? Does it remain within the EU single market? Does it have a trade agreement, a free trade agreement, such that the EU has with Canada uh, or what have you? And largely because of the political situation in the UK, right? because this declaration is aimed almost entirely at the UK, in fact, specifically almost entirely at conservative backbenchers. What they've tried to do is to keep it as vague as possible such that people can project their favoured outcome onto it. So it's a real masterpiece of, of sort of fudging and ambiguity and leaving spaces for things to be filmed in down the line. So what is this backstop option? So the backstop is a promise that the EU has got out of the UK that whatever trading arrangements we end up with, this will be, you know, the final trading arrangements after an implementation period or after a negotiation, will be such that there will be no hard border between Northern Ireland, which of course is part of the UK, and the Irish Republic, which is the southern part of the island of Ireland, those two being divided for unfortunate historical reasons, including 800 years of imperial oppression keeping that border open in order to fulfil the Good Friday Agreement, which was a deal made between the UK and the Irish governments back in 1998, which was designed to end you know, the decades of, of terrorism. And, you know, it's, the, the discussions now become blindingly complex, but in essence, it's quite simple. The further that the UK moves away from 
the EU's as a trading area from the customs union and particularly from its regulatory regime, the more it is necessary to have some kind of hard border, be that inspection posts, border guards, sort of things like that. Those, of course, threaten the Good Friday Agreement. So there is a very clear tension there. One way of getting around this would be to say, well, Northern Ireland will remain basically part of the EU for you know, trading purposes, and Great Britain, you know, the, the England, Wales and Scotland would not, it would be slightly removed. The problem with that is that then you essentially have a border, be it customs and or regulation, down the Irish Sea, i.e. between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And the Unionist parties in Northern Ireland, particularly the Democratic Unionist Party, on whose votes Theresa May's government is inconveniently resting, do not like that. They hate anything which will draw a divide between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK because they think that ultimately that will tend to lead to Northern Ireland joining the Republic. So the EU has essentially insisted on this backstop saying, you know, no matter what happens, we want it to be made very clear that the trading arrangements will ensure that there is no hard border between the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland. And that creates all sorts of difficulties in negotiating an outcome, and in particular different judgments about how much border infrastructure you would need, you know, in order to have two different trading systems next to each other. There was this tension, the EU wanted a guarantee of no hard border, the UK didn't want a border down the Irish Sea. What did they end up with? So the latest thing is the UK have agreed the idea of having a UK-wide customs union as a backstop, so the UK would remain in a customs union with the EU. The problem with this as a, as a long-term solution is that customs, you know, and, and strictly tariffs and other course customs formalities are only part of what creates friction across a border, and it's not even the biggest part of what creates friction across a border. Most friction across a border is created by regulations, right? The need to inspect particularly food, though there are actually some arrangements in place altogether. I mean, all products coming across to make sure that they adhere properly to regulations. There are also, by the way, a whole bunch of other things like stopping money smuggling and drug smuggling and smuggling, you know, cultural treasures, artefacts and so forth, the cross borders, which people often ignore. So the UK-wide customs union smooths things a bit, but it's certainly, by and of itself, it isn't a long-term solution. Aren't the Brexiteers going to say that this is all a disaster and that you know, with this backstop, with this pledge that there will be no border, effectively the UK has signed up to the EU being able to dictate its rules? Absolutely. This is one of the key criticisms that the Brexiters, particularly the hard Brexiters, have made, that essentially the EU has used the Irish border issue as a lever to make sure that they can make the UK do whatever they want in one particularly spectacularly tasteless turn of phrase, given the recent history of Northern Ireland, they said that the EU has weaponized the Irish border to turn it into a, a something which will keep, keep the UK close. Unfortunately, they have not actually come up with any kind of solution which satisfies the EU, or frankly, satisfies anyone who knows very much about trade, about how you can keep the border open while having a fundamentally different trade regime in the UK as opposed to the Irish Republic. Do you think the EU is being unreasonable here? Ultimately, no. There may be some issues, some particular issues on which there may be some flexibility. But, you know, fundamentally, and I think this is an issue that people in the UK really haven't grasped, is the EU is genuinely seriously concerned about the single market. Now, the single market, which ironically, and there are layers and layers of irony here, 
was largely a British creation through, you know, Margaret Thatcher, says once a good is placed within the single market, it can circulate freely, it can be sold anywhere. The implication of that, of course, is that the external borders of the EU are very important and all of the EU countries uh, have a duty to maintain their external borders, or at least, sorry, I should say, to, to make sure that anything entering adheres to EU regulations. If Ireland does not do that, if Ireland just leaves the border open and things come across the border, and if they're substandard, then Ireland itself will be in breach of its regulations. So in a sense, it's not even really the EU making some unpleasant political decision. It simply logically follows from the fact that the single market is a legal order and that the EU is bound to protect that legal order. One of the things that struck me is that what's what's happened with the Irish border issue is it's basically, it's put the onus of the problem onto Ireland now. The UK can say, if they go off and negotiate a free trade agreement with the United States and the chlorinated chicken comes in and then it gets into to Ireland, basically now the, the onus is on Ireland to have to construct these. Sure. Powers. I mean, the UK can do that and they've they've intermittently threatened to do that and simply yeah. say, well, we, we will leave the Irish border open and you know, we dare you to put up infrastructure. That would be regarded, I think, as such a rogue nation thing to do. But at the time, the UK is trying to establish itself as this sensible, independent trading nation and trying to regularise its own position within the WTO. The idea of them simply saying, well, we're just going to leave the border open, you know, clearly as a political gesture to try and make things very difficult for Ireland is going to be a really explosive thing to do. I don't, I, I can't imagine they would actually do that. Can we talk about some of the things that have been proposed that could ease this problem, ease these frictions? One thing I've been hearing about is this mutual recognition agreement. What is that and and would it work? And there my guess would be that this mutual recognition agreement, the EU could recognize the UK standards, reducing the need for border checks. So it's, it's often not very clear what Brexiters talk about when they mean a mutual recognition agreement. One thing they point at is the existing mutual recognition agreement, of which the EU has about, um, I think, eight, eight or nine. However, despite its name, it isn't actually about recognising each other's regulations as being equivalent. All it is is a system of recognising testing. So you say, if you're the US and the EU has an MRA, mutual recognition agreement with the US, you say, there are certain testing centres in the US whom we, the EU, trust to conduct tests that American goods conform to EU standards before they're being exported to the EU. But it has nothing to do with whether American standards themselves are actually equivalent to the EU. In fact, if you look it up, the the EU agreement with the US, it only covers two sectors for a start. It covers some forms of electronics and I think radio equipment. And there are only about 11 testing centres in the entirety of the US that are actually authorised. I actually called one of them. They're in California. I spoke to a nice guy called Steve. I said, Steve, do you actually test much stuff for export to the EU? And he said, no, not really. In fact, he said the main function of it from their point of view was that it was a good signal to their uh, their customers, their American customers, that they were a high-quality testing centre. In other words, the function of the MRA as it currently exists is to help an American testing center in California impress its American customers' testing goods to be sold in America. This is not really what it's for. Now, there have been some moves to go further and actually recognize other regulations as being equivalent. For example, there's some some bits of the EU-Japan bilateral deal, which was concluded recently, which do that. However, they're really small and they're quite tentative and they tend to be based on you know both regulations 
being rooted in some sort of global standard. The idea that you're going to be able to sign agreements like that, which mean that the entirety, mean the tens of thousands of products that the UK exports into the EU, will automatically be recognised as equivalent to the EU process is fantasy. I'm sorry, but it's just fantasy. Could you explain a bit about why it might make sense to have different kinds of regulations for different countries? Well, the UK, for example, would argue that in financial services, where of course it is by far and away the most competitive country in the EU, it makes sense to have regulations which are tailored to the UK, which has a much bigger and more complex financial system than the rest of the EU. So if they had the choice of, after Brexit, simply accepting the bulk of EU regulations or forging on their own way, they might think they might want to to forge their own way. The issue with that, of course, is that once you start setting your own rules, then it becomes harder to persuade the EU to automatically accept you know, financial services from the UK. So as ever, there's a trade-off. But, you know, there is certainly a good argument. There is a reasonable argument that in a sector where you are very competitive, you are a market leader, that you sell not just to the EU, by the way, but to all around the world, that going your own way on regulations would make some sense. One of the areas at the moment where there isn't a lot of convergence in regulations across these major markets is in data. So can you explain first the EU's approach to thinking about data? I mean, the, the EU's approach, which is often its approach across a lot of issues, is we will set our own rules. You know, we are a giant regulator. We set our own rules. If you want to do business with us, you can basically follow our rules or find a way of showing us that you're following our rules. So recently it introduced a new data protection legislation, the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, which heavily increases the protection of personal data and places lots of restrictions on moving personal data back and forth. Now, you can contrast that with, for example, the American attitude, which is that you should write tough and binding rules actually into trade deals saying you can only stop the cross-border transfer of data under certain narrowly defined circumstances. I mean, in theory, the EU does this as well and puts them in trade deals. In reality, that's kind of quite weak. So the EU attitude is, you know, we pass this regulation. You want to do business with us. You need to show us that your system is good enough. And then they signed a series of what they call adequacy agreements, saying, yep, we think your data protection is good enough that we can transfer data back and forth. And so the EU model, and this happens across a lot of areas, I mean, much more old-fashioned areas as well, like chemicals and all sorts of things. The EU model is really, they set their own regulations and they wait for the rest of the world to fall into line. How does this practically affect companies trying to do business? Well, it comes up, I mean, not just in the obvious ways as with platforms and social media and so on, sending data back and forth, but it actually affects more and more old wrong technologies like trucks, for example. I spoke to Scania, the Swedish truck maker, um, a while ago, and they say, that, you know, when they sell trucks around the world, increasingly they sell a bundle of services along with the truck. And part of it is the truck sends back data on how it's performing to Scania, which enables them to give service advice to the owners of the truck, and they also feed that into their own manufacturing. Now, if part of that data suddenly starts to be classified as personal data, for whatever reason, and then there are limits on bringing personal data back and forth, then suddenly you've actually got kind of, you know, manufacturing supply chains, never mind anything else, but manufacturing supply chains being threatened by restrictions on data movement. So really, this is a big issue because the, the entire economy is becoming digitized and not just those things which are purely digital goods or digital products. The UK has obviously been 
talking about negotiating a free trade deal with the US. Uh, and the US, I think, has submitted its request to Congress to start negotiating the deal. Data seems like one of those areas where really the UK might have to choose between the EU and the US approach. Is, is that too extreme an interpretation? I think that's possibly a slightly extreme interpretation. I mean, if you look at Japan, for example, when the US pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and actually it was Japan that not only revived it and turned it from the TPP into the CPTPP, Japan also insisted on keeping the, um, the bits about data flow and guaranteeing cross-border data flow that had originally been drafted by the US. So that was all duly signed. Japan is quite keen on international data flow. At the same time, it's managed to sign an adequacy agreement with the EU saying that its own protection of, of data is good enough for the EU. So, as with many things, it will certainly stop, you know, the, the desire to be part of European system or close to the European system and close to the US system will stop it being very close to any system. I mean, it certainly won't be able to remain part of the EU data protection system. But it's not entirely incompatible that you can, on the one hand, get an adequacy agreement, meaning you can exchange data with the EU, and on the other, sign a US-style trade deal, which has stronger stronger, you know, guarantees for cross-border data flow. So it's not as if the Americans and Europeans don't get along in this area. There originally was the safe harbor provision between the two, which then got transformed into the privacy shield. But how about with China? Well, I think China is off on a, a track of its own, which has to have more and more control on data. It's now, I think, essentially impossible. If, if, if some Chinese agency or bureaucrat wants to stop you taking data out of China, they, will, they have a rule or regulation or a facility somewhere to stop you taking data out of China. It is very easy for the Chinese to categorize data as personal data and very easy to stop people taking it out. And so you do actually hear people talking about the global economy dividing into different data realms. You know, one sort of centered on Europe, one sort of centered on the US, though that's not a very mutually exclusive distinction. But then China, which really is all to itself, and in fact has been tightening up on data flow rather than loosening it, as indeed it has on large parts of its economy. You know, in, in a sense, you could see this as part of people expecting China to become more liberal and more open to the world. And in fact, it's, 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 giving it, it's, it's at least giving itself laws which allow it to clamp down further. You said that this was really important for you know economies, businesses, and it seems to be this very live battle that's playing out in all of these trade deals. Is there a sense that perhaps if Donald Trump wasn't in the White House, this would be the thing that everyone would be talking about in the trade sphere? Yes, I mean, there's one interesting thing, which is if you look at the USMCA, which is the renegotiation of NAFTA, people who understand this a lot better than I do say the data provisions in there are actually really tough. They actually go even further than the TPP provisions. Donald Trump would appear not to care at all about the tech sector, right? They are not his people. He thinks they're Democrats. Nonetheless, there is, there's enough sort of inertia within the system. There's enough, you know, sort of, sort of residual pressure towards this within the US trade system, within the US trade representative's office, that they are still continuing to push for tighter controls on the ability of countries to prevent data going back and forth. So yes, you know, I, and one of the peculiarities of Donald Trump's trade policy is that he's pursuing some very old-fashioned parts of the economy, such as steel and aluminium, and actually in himself not really focusing on not really uh, making a priority to ensure the free flow of data. Sticking on Trump, has anything surprised you about the EU's approach to the Trump administration? I mean, I was slightly surprised, slightly disappointed, I guess, but slightly surprised that they were so prepared to do 
this light deal that President Trump and President Juncker agreed in the summer, namely in return for the US no longer going after European car exports with special tariffs, they would do a deal where they cut industrial goods tariffs, accepting cars, to zero and various other sort of, you know, fluffy symbolic things to do with soybeans and so forth. The problem with this is, as far as I see it, it kind of violates several of the principles that EU has thumped the table about and said it's extremely keen on. The EU has always said, you know, we don't do deals unless they cover substantially all trade, which is the WTO expression. And whereas here they're excluding agriculture and cars. I don't you think you can call that substantially all trade. They've also said we do not do deals with countries that do not sign up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement. The US clearly uh, does not and is unlikely to sign up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which the EU gets out of by saying, oh, well, this isn't a form deal, it's just a little deal and so forth. So I kind of think it's slightly sordid and slightly opportunistic. And I would expect a country that really wants to be a global leader in trade policy and to say, you know, we will set high standards, we will lead the world forward in high standards. Um, I would expect them to have stuck to their principles rather more than they have on that particular deal. Is it really so surprising that given the exposure of German car makers to, to tariffs, they caved? You say that, but then again, the German car makers were always cited as the reason that Britain was going to get a good deal on Brexit. And Britain did not get a good deal on Brexit. So the German car makers are powerful. They're not always, you know, supremely powerful. Um, and so I'm not hugely surprised, but I guess I'm kind of disappointed. It's, it's an example of where the, the, the EU rhetoric and the EU practice have diverged quite a lot. For all of the trade newbies out there that have entered the library, from somebody who's been doing this a long time, what advice would you have for them? There's so much advice. We could go on for hours. But I think it is that trade is such a blindingly complex subject. And most trade people, I mean, you know, the reason people spend lifetimes in the library is because you could spend a lifetime and still not understand it. You know, I, I used to cover trade full time as the FT's trade editor. And it's the only time ever as a journalist. I actually just had to keep, you know, big documents on my hard drive <laughs> explaining stuff to myself because I knew that once I'd come back, to looking at something, looking at safeguard mechanisms for agricultural imports, for example, I would just simply have forgotten it. I've never had to do that before. I never had to do that since, but I had to do it for this because there was so much of it and there were so many exceptions and so forth. So I would just say it's one of those things, and this is a general thing in particularly for journalists, but it's one of those things where actually looking at the detail and going and looking at the detail yourself is enormously valuable because an awful lot of nonsense is talked about trade. And the level of the debate, certainly among politicians in Britain, for example, over Brexit, is strikingly low. I mean, really strikingly, awfully low. And really elementary mistakes are being made. Unfortunately, that's not very easy advice to follow. And it's not a sort of uh, make yourself a trade expert in an afternoon try advice to follow. But that is because there are no trade experts who become trade experts in an afternoon. It takes years and it takes decades and you forget it all anyway. Inspiring words. (laughs) Alan, thank you very much. No problem. That is all for Trade Talks. Thanks to Alan Beattie of the Financial Times for joining us. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our expert audio guy. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to Trade Talks merchandise clothing items, two is better than one. Why don't you tell listeners about the debut of the official Trade Talks tie? 
So the European Commission had kindly invited me to European Trade Day, and one of the things that they wanted me to do was to help engage the audience of these four, five, six, seven hundred trade geeks. And so to do so, they had me do a set of questions and open-ended answers that gave word clouds. This started to go a little bit slowly, and so luckily I had a Trade Talks tie, which if you're just wearing a suit like I was, looks like a normal tie until you unbutton your suit jacket and then voila, it says Trade Talks. I think it's the ugliest object I've ever encountered. And I, I think it was it was perfect for the occasion. 